When you think about what you want to do as a copywriter, what exactly does that look like? What kinds of businesses or what kind of business do you ultimately want to build? Some of us are perfectly content to write copy for clients, while others may want to grow something like an agency or create and sell a product or even build a software platform. For the 209th episode of the Copywriter Club podcast, we took some time to catch up with Aman Zabi, who is doing all three of these things today. Aman has transformed her business from solo copywriter working on small projects to agency owner, product developer, and in a few more days, a SaaS entrepreneur. We'll share our interview with Aman in a moment, but first, this episode is brought to you by the Copywriter Think Tank, a private mastermind group for copywriters and marketers who want to create new revenue streams in their business, receive one-on-one -on -one coaching from the two of us, and ultimately grow to 200K or more. Email help at thecopywriterclub.com to set up an interview. We interviewed Amon a little over two years ago. She was just starting to get traction in her business. Since then, she's completely changed what she does in ways that she didn't even see coming back then. So let's jump into our interview and catch up on what's changed over the last two years. Let's talk about where you have been, what you have been up to since we last spoke on the podcast, which was the 82nd episode. So it's been a while. I know you're up to some amazing things and we're going to talk about that today, but uh, let's talk about specifics. Uh, can you just kind of run us through some, some highlights in your timeline? Sure. So this was, I think, early or late 2017 or like early 2018. Since then, um, I have a team. I've grown a team, which is kind of wild because it was just me back then. And I was still very unsure of what I wanted to do. And I was, oh, I was back and I was still in the outdoor space. Wow. Okay. That's a throwback. Um, I was still like the outdoor copywriter and I was uh, writing for small women-owned outdoor businesses primarily at the time. And I eventually, thanks to you, Kara, I started pivoting towards more course creator, um, launch clients, while still having that outdoor branding. And somewhere around 2019, I actually got around to making that pivot completely with my branding and everything. And then I started growing a team. I hired my first writer in 2019. And then 2020 is when it kind of actually went crazy. Towards the end of 2019, we launched a physical product, which was kind of insane because I decided one week before Black Friday that I wanted to create this. And then we launched three days before Black Friday. Kind of insane. Um, so we launched the conversion kits, which are brainstorming decks for um, people who are launching either courses or memberships, but also, and we also launched um, a copywriter deck to, to help people, you know, structure their research and all of that. And we designed it, built like this little landing page for it. And then we pre-sold it. We sold like, I think hundred plus um, right before Black Friday. And then we tried to have it manufactured mid pandemic, which was very interesting. <laughs> so we, manufactured and then shipped those out earlier this year and then we decided we wanted to create a course platform so that's kind of where we're at right now 
and our team has grown from me <laughs> and my wonderful OBM to, as of last Monday, 13 people. Holy cow. Okay. So yeah, we've got a lot to unravel then. This has been a really big two years. So I, I want to go like all the way back to, you know, as you were shifting into a different space and you started to build this team, you hired your first writer, like walk us through the thought process, what you were going through as you did that. And you know, we've talked to dozens of writers who are at that part of their business where they're like, okay, in order to grow, I need to either have a team or I need to you know, change the kinds of projects that I'm working on. Uh, and so they're, they're really thinking through this process. I'd be really interested in hearing how you navigated it and how you did it successfully, because again, lots of things can go wrong here. Sure. Um, and lots of things did go wrong in the process. I made so many mistakes with hiring, especially initially. Um, but the decision to hire came about because I was super burnt out. I just found that I wasn't enjoying the work as much because I was spending so much time doing, like, I had retainers. I had lots of retainers at that point, And there was just so much social media copy and all of these other things involved in the retainers, which I didn't necessarily enjoy as much. And I was just burnt out and I really wanted, I didn't want to give up the income, but I wanted some extra support. So I hired a friend from university. Um, she was a very good friend and she was looking to kind of get into the industry. So I hired her part-time and yeah, so she took a lot off my plate initially. Um, she eventually decided to go back to grad school. So that didn't work out long-term, but that was really how that decision came out. Let's talk more about this, the 13 people that you're working with. Um, I have so many questions. I'm just going to throw a bunch of questions at you and you can answer whatever you'd like. But, you know, is your OBM full-time? She feels like she's full-time. She's actually some kind of weird, <laughs> magical unicorn. Um, she does have other clients, but I don't know how she juggles everything because essentially the Scribesmith is three businesses because we have the e-commerce side, we have the platform we're developing, and then we have the agency side and she manages all of it. And then... The 13 people, can you just talk about what that actually looks like? How are they each working on a separate client? Are those clients mostly retainers or are they projects? Just tell me all the things about how you're running and managing 13 people and what that actually looks like. Okay, sure. So it's me and then it's my OBM, Haley, who's also a copywriter, um, which has actually been really helpful because she's able to give um, good writing feedback to the writers and things like that when I'm swamped. Um, and then we have a virtual assistant who is incredible. She's the most organized human being in the world. She's fantastic. Um, we have two writers, both are full-time. The virtual assistant is also full-time. And now the we have a UX designer who's helping with the terrain and the platform development side of things. Um, we have four people who are kind of working on um, managing the process of onboarding all the new course creators we're working with and doing like you know growth and acquisition type things and then we have two people who are doing trying to get podcast interviews and trying to do like guest posting and all that kind of PR and cons kind of things especially leading up to our big launch so that's kind of I think that was 13 in total. <laughs> so you mentioned you know as you started to create this team a lot of things went wrong uh, you, would you mention a couple of the you know the pitfalls that you had to work through before you got to the point where you are now? And I, I can imagine we may actually be talking about teams here for a while, but uh, yeah, I'm really curious in how you stepped through the stuff that was going wrong and, and made it out the other side. 
Sure. Um, first off, don't ever hire friends. Like that was just a bad idea on my part. Um, while she was wonderful, <laughs> it was just very difficult for me because I'm I'm kind of a people pleaser. So it's very hard. It was very hard to have like difficult conversations about, you know, constructive criticism or, you know, deadlines are actually deadlines and those kind of things when it's somebody you know that well. Um, so that was a big one. The other thing, again, both of the other big mistakes I think I've made were also around hiring. I hired people and ignored red flags. And then I took too long. So the first person I hired, oh my goodness, she faked her father's death to get like paid time off. And what? Wait, no, wait, no <laughs> way. Yeah, she was, Um, I think she knew I was- How do you pull that off? How do you pull that off? I, I don't, I mean, she just- I guess you didn't. She didn't pull it off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, well, she did because the night, like, I, I didn't, I was about to fire her and then she told me her dad died and then she needed some time off. So obviously I didn't fire her. And then she kind of milked that for about a month and a half. And then I had enough and basically laid her off, I think. Yeah. Pretty much two months after I had initially wanted to fire her, I laid her off. And her father's still alive and well. Yeah, he's, he's alive and well. I saw, I saw pictures of her, like him at her wedding. Oh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So let's talk about how you manage this big of a team too, because another of the reasons why I think a lot of people really hesitate to bring on people to help is that they don't want to transition to a manager role. They actually like copywriting and they like engaging with the clients, but at some level you have to step into the CEO role and actually run the business. So talk a little bit about that too. Right. And I do really like engaging with the clients as well. And I still do that part. So all of the client meetings, I still do myself, but um, all of, you know, the project management side of things, because everything is assigned through um, Asana or Trello, uh, my virtual assistant, she will go in and she will pull out all of those tasks, put them into our own Asana and then assign them to the writing lead. And she will kind of distribute it amongst the whoever's doing the writing work. So the whole, all of the project management side is completely off my plate. All I have to do is actually show up for these client meetings, record them, and then give them to my team. And then they break it down into tasks or whatever else they need to do. The actual writing itself, I do really enjoy the writing and I miss some parts of it, but um, I, I really enjoy the copy chiefing part as well. So we have like an internal review system. So um, anything that one writer writes is always reviewed by another writer before or then Haley before it comes to me. So I get to like do finishing touches and um, give feedback. And then it's passed on to our VA who handles delivery. So I'm only really involved with the, in the final stage where it's kind of being reviewed. But if it's a complex project, like if we're working on, um, I still do all of the launch copy and sales copy and stuff like myself, but it's just for our retainers where there's, you know, recurring emails that go out every week or, you know, social media posts and things like that. They have it completely systemized. I only review before it goes out. But if it's a launch or something else, then I will step in right at the beginning of the process and give like a really detailed brief, um, really guide the research process as much as I can, and then check in at every stage and then continue to I work with them. So I feel like I still get to do a lot of the work that I really enjoy. And do you tell your clients that they're working with your team and that you're really just copy chiefing or what does that conversation look like? I do mention that, um, you know, that they're getting a full team and I try and frame that as a benefit because, you know, you get lots of create, you have, you know, the creativity of a bigger group and you have less likely of things, you know, there's things don't slip through the cracks as much and things like that. Um, I do mention that I, 
quality control or everything and nothing goes out without my approval. So that kind of addresses any fears that they're getting subpar work or anything like that. Um, and we haven't ever really had any pushback on that. How many projects are you managing a month on average? And like, how, what's the breakdown of retainers versus launch projects? What does that look like? So it's usually, let me see. I think it's about, it's at four retainers right now. And then it's either one launch project or it'll be maybe two smaller projects that, and the one-off projects usually I will do myself because it just doesn't, I don't really have the time these days to kind of systemize it and then hand it off to the team. So the retainers are them. It's like 95% them, but um, one-off projects are me and launches are a good split between the two of us, like between the writing team and me. Okay. Let's talk about money. If that's okay with you, like what, what are you typically charging for retainers? Um, if you, or do you have a range and then what are your projects? What are the scopes of your projects and, um, what are you charging for those typically now? Sure. So retainers, it really depends on what they're kind of looking for. If it's just one email a week type thing, then it's closer to 2000. Um, and that usually includes a few hours to do just, you know, like to consult on any copy or strategy needs and things like that. Um, but we do have bigger retainers, which involve uh, where, where we are essentially embedded into their team and we take on all of their copy work and that's billed hourly. And then for our launches, I mean, they're, they're obviously bigger now and it's, it's upwards of 20, depending on um, what they're really looking for. One-off projects, again, I mean, it really depends, but they usually start around seven or eight. Okay. And with your writers, um, I know a lot of copywriters ask, like, well, how should I pay my writers? What's the breakdown? What are best practices? We've talked about it a little bit on the podcast. Um, could you share how you approach paying your team and paying your writers uh, specifically? Sure. Um, I hired my writers full time um, just because I was I've, I've had bad experiences with, you know, trying to pay people hourly and or doing the split. I, I just would. Really like to have really like the idea of having somebody who is fully committed to the Scribesmith and having them work on lots of different projects and then continuing to grow with really the agency. So you mentioned the three different things that you're doing in your business. How much of your business is still copywriting and the team as far as say uh, revenues, percentage of revenues? Well, like ninety five percent, honestly. Um, the agency still where all of the money comes from. The e-commerce store is something that has been helping on the acquisition front. Um, and it's something that we do get, so, like we get maybe maybe 1,000, 1,500-ish a month from there, but um, it's not a big revenue stream. And then the platform hasn't been launched yet. <laughs> so no money coming in on that front. That's definitely been where the money has been going, but nothing has been coming out of it just yet because we haven't launched. Yeah, it makes sense. And we'll, we'll talk about those in just a minute, I think maybe just a couple other questions about your team. Um, so as you've grown your team, have you expanded the kinds of services that you've offered to clients so that maybe you've gone outside of the niche that you started in or the kinds of copy products that you offer, or have you just kept everything, you know, as it was uh, when you really started hiring people? We've definitely expanded. Um, we do, we still work primarily just with course creators and um, people with memberships. 
but we do more kinds of copy for them. So with retainers, I mean, we're doing everything from like social media copy to, you know, helping them with actual course development and um, writing white papers and case studies and all of that. We're doing all of that in-house and we've also started doing Facebook ad management. So, oh, that was the person I missed, sorry. <laughs> we have a Facebook ads manager as well. Um, so she does, um, so she has been running ads for her own business, but she's also started running ads for a few clients who very graciously agreed to be our guinea pigs. What would your advice be for other copywriters who maybe are just starting to grow a team? Maybe they've already brought on a couple of people, but they're like, I don't know how to do this well. Or maybe they're thinking about doing that. What advice would you give them to do it really well? I mean, I feel like the first couple of people you hire, it's always going to be a little bit messy because it's hard to have those systems and processes in place um, before you have somebody to kind of test them out for you. So I know I thought I had great systems in place and then I brought people in and they're like, this makes no sense to us. Like, what are we, what are you trying to say here? When I gave like SOPs and things like that. So um, I think working with your first few hires to create something, um, create really good SOPs and continuing to refine them. So now we have like this master document of trainings and things like that. And every time someone goes through them, they just kind of add in extra details and more clarification, things that didn't immediately stand out to them. And having that be this kind of living, breathing document that it's been really helpful for us. I'm on a few weeks ago on the podcast, we had Jerisha Hawk who talked a little bit about her team and some of the questions that she asks when she's reviewing herself and her own performance. And I'm curious, you know, you've got this big team of people. How do you um, conduct performance reviews or how do you sit down with your team and make sure that people are growing, they're expanding their skills, they're improving and doing right, and that you're actually giving them the feedback that helps them to do better in their jobs? Sure. So we do, we have a system where we do um, Friday reports. So, and I, I do them as well. And it really helps with like transparency and it, because we're, big or fairly big now it's kind of it's um we've had to have like I started noticing that I didn't necessarily know what everybody was doing so having that system has been really helpful it's it's really what did you accomplish this week um were there any obstacles and how do you feel about this week overall and that's essentially it and usually the bottleneck or the obstacle is me because I've taken too long to review something but um it's also it's helpful to kind of identify areas for us to improve on efficiency in terms of with the writers, I give them ongoing feedback with every project. Um, and that's really either in the form of like comments or loom, loom videos and things like that. Um, with the other people on the team that I don't necessarily manage, like I don't manage the Facebook ads person, um, Haley will handle that. Um, the VA, Haley will handle that. I don't really have to worry about it. The growth people and the PR comms people, um, the VA is handling them. So really there's, I only really manage the writers and then kind of get a big picture view of what's going on. How have you dealt with this fast growth, right? Like, I mean, this is really fast to go and to grow to 13 people in 2020 from 2019. So how do you manage that mindset wise? Um, Like, are you doing anything special to handle this type of growth? Um, What's helped helped you? Uh, Maybe what hasn't helped you? Um, honestly, I haven't done too much on that front. I think last year, um, I, I found that my business was growing faster than my mindset was kind of allowing me to fully 
kind of grasp. And I did some work with Linda Perry and that was really helpful for me. And I feel like right after that, I was like, okay, gates have opened. I'm good for now. And then it's just been full steam ahead. But I haven't actually, I mean, 2020 has been wild for us and I haven't had time to even sit down and process all of it. And I mean, if we had spoken last month, then we would have had seven people on the team. And now we have 13. So oh, wow. it's just, yeah, it's, it's just, oh <laughs> and we're probably hiring again in November. So um, it's, yeah, I don't think I've actually had time to slow down and process everything. Well, I guess the follow-up to that is you mentioned we're hiring again in November is what is the plan for the agency side? And we haven't talked about the other sides of your business yet, but is it to continue to grow? Is like, what is that vision for you? I, I go back and forth on this. Um, it really depends on it's how I'm feeling that day about client work. Uh, I, I spoke to Linda yesterday and I was on her podcast and I'm like, I don't know if I want to keep the agency. I go back and forth on it. I think I do want to, oh, I, today I feel like I want to keep the agency. I don't think it's going to go away anytime, um, anytime soon, really, because it is, um, it's working really well. It's working like clockwork and it would be impulsive and stupid of me to try and like phase it out, especially at this point. But I, where I personally enjoy the business most is like the, the part that lets me innovate and create and build. And I really want to lean into that side of things. So I think while the agency will grow in parallel, I want to be on the creation side of things. I want to be building products and um, really trying to innovate within this space as much as possible. Let's break in here and talk about Amon's approach to growing a team. So usually when we talk about this, Kara, we're referring to you know adding a VA or maybe hiring a business manager to help with systems, the kind of stuff we talked with Jordan uh, recently, and or even maybe just like a junior writer to help with some of the project load that we have. But Amon has a team of 13 people and is adding more soon. So uh, what do you, I, this is amazing to me. What are your initial thoughts about what Amon has built? Well, I really, I really like the way that Aman thinks about the different divisions in her business. And I think that it's easy as copywriters to just think about the services we're providing and that department in your business and to just try to grow that. And that takes a lot of time and effort. But what's really cool is when you see copywriters who've expanded and started to create these other whether you want to call them divisions or departments, it doesn't really matter what you call it, but expanding and creating new revenue streams in different spaces like Amon has done. So I love how she has her agency, which she's figured out how it works. She's got that set in place and she has her e-commerce division with products. And now she has this platform that she's created where she's taking a revenue share uh, from the courses that are coming out of the new platform that she's created in the SaaS space. So it's really cool to see how she's growing her business and using her skill set as a creator and someone who really truly is an entrepreneur um, to build her business this way. And I think the copywriters I've seen who are thinking a little bit bigger are starting to view their businesses as far as like the different departments and divisions too. And when you look at the Copywriter Club, we could even break that down and think about how the different divisions in the Copywriter Club, I mean, we have one section around training and coaching, but we also have 
an events department where we are holding events and, and we were holding in-person events and making money from events too. So we could say that's another department. And then even a third for us, which is media, which would be the podcast for now, and even potentially um, having sponsorship revenue from media. And so we can all start thinking that way, even if you're a newer freelancer, just thinking about how you would like to grow in terms of the different departments you'd like to build in your own business. Yeah, that word department is kind of interesting because coming from a corporate background, you know, where I've spent at least part of my career, you know, I, I envision, you know, the floor where that department is housed or the office, you know, and uh, it's not really like that. You know, um, it's the same people as you and me and a couple of the people who, you know, help us out, Brandon and Rosie and Teresa and and how we divide that up, you know, into departments. And I'm, I'm kind of using air quotes as we talk about it um, is is kind of the trick, right? I mean, we get the right people in place and then it's just relying on people to use their skills to the best of their ability. And that was something that I also like that Iman talked about, you know, that the way that she approaches making sure that people are getting things done, having that weekly follow-up where she's asking, you know, what did you accomplish? And, you know, what are the roadblocks and how can I help you? And just sort of like thinking through that same process, you know, whether it's in our business or, you know, the, our, each of our own individual businesses as we work with clients or the business of any copywriter who's listening is, you know, the, the people that may be helping you, whether that's in a formal relationship or not, what are the roadblocks keeping them from getting more done? And, you know, how can you help them accomplish more so they can help you accomplish more? Yeah, and I think what else Amon has done that's really smart is how she has moved her team around and, and utilized her talent on her team. And so she mentioned that her team, she has multiple retainer clients. And so her team actually does 95% of the work on the retainers because it's consistent. They've captured the voice. They basically know what that work looks like. And then Amon's time, at least currently, this is probably going to change for her, is focused on the one-off projects or um, the launches where she'll have some support from her team, but she or she might manage more of those one-off projects where you have to jump in with a new client, figure out a new voice, a new strategy, which is also a strength of hers. So I think if you are looking to grow a team, um, it could make sense to start to create those retainers, the reliable income where you can start to understand the basics and like the voice and the strategy and then start to hand off more and more of that work to other copywriters on your team and then focus your time on strategy with new clients or one-off projects. Yeah, I love discussions like this because it just gives me a, a window into the way that somebody else is building a business that's very different from the one that I have built. So it's just eye-opening in a lot of ways. Okay, let's get back to the interview with Amon and find out more about her approach to building a business that includes products and software. Let's talk a little bit about why you decided to create some products. What has gone into those? I know there were some hiccups around, you know, deliveries and, but the cards, I'm actually looking at the cards right now. They're sitting on my desk, but tell us why you decided to develop products and the process in actually getting these created and out to market. Sure. So um, it was a very impulsive sort of decision. I have always used note cards and flashcards when I'm planning for launches because it's really helpful for me to move bits and pieces around. And I was speaking to a client and I just grabbed them off my table and 
she was more interested in the cards than what I was saying. And I'm like, hmm, maybe there's something here. And this was maybe like a week out from Black Friday. And then um, I basically told Kaylee and the one person we had on our team at the time that uh, we were going to get this. We, I wanted to do this and we were going to try and get it out before um, Black Friday. So I hired someone on Fiverr to do the design. I had all of the content ready because it was really on um, my flashcards. And I basically roped in my mother and made her, I wanted to see if I could teach her how to do a launch with the cards and it worked. So if my mom could do it, I was sure that someone who was more familiar with business would be able to do it and threw up a landing page and then really just put it out into the world and hoped that people would reshare it and they did. And that's that was really it. We pre-sold everything and then we had to figure out delivery. I didn't even have a manufacturer kind of locked in at that point. Found a manufacturer, um, hired a translator because I don't speak Chinese, um, and then really had to kind of navigate delivery and production mid-pandemic. It would take weeks for us to get samples. And then finally, I think this was right before TCC IRL this year or right after, I had like, I think it was nine giant boxes of decks show up and like show up and they were in my garage. And then we had to pack each one manually and then mail them out to everybody. So that was a very interesting experience. And then we launched on product hunt. We were product, we were product of the day and then, it kind of, and that's been really good for us because it brings in steady sales. Okay. I know. Yeah. And I know we want to talk more about all the products and I have mine sitting in front of me too. It's beautiful, but I kind of, I feel like I'm still stuck on, maybe it's just me. I'm stuck on the fact that you've grown so fast. And I'm like, as I listen to you talk about everything you're doing, I'm just like, how, how are you doing it? And so I guess my question really is, how do you, how have you dealt with the burnout? Because you mentioned burnout a couple of times. I mean, it sounds like you're kind of like powering through, but, but how do you actually deal with it? And what does that look like for you? And where have you struggled over the last year? I have very poor self-control and like boundaries around work. Um, I will work till, till like 3am and then I'll be up at seven and I'll be working again. There are days when I won't like have my first meal till like five or 6pm. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, and earlier this year, I think probably July or August, I think I hit like absolute complete burnout. Like I wasn't able to kind of even muster the energy to get out of bed. I was just so, so tired. I would take client calls from my bed and pretend like I was at work, but I was just exhausted. Um, I would really only get out, get up to do any kind of, um, to do client work. And, um, I needed to take a week off. Like I needed a full week off. Um, I was on a boat in, um, and just away from everything work related. And that was really, that was really therapeutic for me. Um, and then I came back and I felt so incredibly recharged. It was like, this is what my brain is like when I give it food, water, and sleep. And, um, obviously I went right back into my routine. So I think it's something I just need more like I need it's something I'm working on I need more structure I need to be better about you know eating and like fueling my body giving it rest and all of that um it's just a cycle of burnout rest burnout rest burnout rest right now obviously there are ways to mitigate that but I look at what you're accomplishing what you've been working on and I'd have a hard time saying 
you're going to accomplish everything you have if you know if you're taking weeks of vacation off at a time or whatever. I mean, they, they kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah, and I'm almost. It's like I used to use the fact that I'm young as kind of a, like an excuse. It was a mindset thing for me, but now it's like I'm young. I can abuse my body right now. I can make up for it when I'm thirty. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I appreciate you being honest in that answer because that's, I know probably other people are wondering the same thing. It's like, you're amazing. And how are you doing all this? And that helps. I appreciate it. So can I go back to, uh, I want to go back to the products just a little bit because I want to understand the economics of it as well. You know, I don't know if it's a moneymaker for you. I, you know, you, you mentioned that it's really good for lead generation, uh, which, you know, maybe that makes even doing something at a loss worthwhile. But, um, you know, as far as the costs go in production and, you know, shipping a product over from China, you know, putting it together in the garage, sending it out, uh, how does that all look from an economic standpoint? We have, with the decks, we have 63% profit margins. So we're doing really well on them. We haven't been running ads or anything like that. We're looking at, um, we're looking at doing, we have a few people who have inquired about wholesale. So that's probably the route we're going to go just because like shipping is exhausting because that's also something I'm doing myself. Can you talk more about that side of your business? What is the plan? Is it to have a shop with multiple products? And what is, when you're talking about wholesale, what does that actually look like? Sure. So um, eventually I think I want to be creating more decks. Um, I've been toying with the idea of creating one for course creators specifically. Um, we've had some interest from other clients about creating, like co-creating decks with other companies and brands. That's something that I'm super interested in pursuing as well. So really it's about building out like a, almost like a product suite of different types of decks. Um, we also have like digital templates and things like that, that we're working on. And we have a few up already. I've also just found like, as of, probably two days ago, um, found a way to have like a digital version of the decks that you can actually move around on your screen and then link it up to your Asana. So tasks get automatically assigned. So that's also in the works and hopefully coming out post, post launch sometime when we have time. Um, I have, there are lots of things I want to do on that side of the business. That's just, there's one of me right now and our team is still too small to handle all of these different types of sides of the business. So it really will be once the business continues to grow and once revenue grows, we can add in more people who can kind of take on those different sides of it. Yeah. I would love to, um, you know, have a copywriter club version of, you know, something like this. So we're definitely gonna have to talk about, you know, is there a way to work together? Um, and you maybe just kind of answered this, but, uh, I was going to ask, you know, what are the other kinds of products that you're thinking of, uh, at least that you're willing to reveal, you know, as, as you're uh, starting to think, okay, how do we expand this part of our business? Sure. So we have, I mean, we have digital templates. We have like webinar script templates and things like that. And that's, um, that's just been something that people have requested and we've just turned our internal stuff into templates and put those up and we might continue to do those because for us, it's a great way of just raising like average cart value because people usually add them in once they're buying, whenever they're buying a deck. Um, but I'm really interested in kind of exploring more tangible, um, brainstorming kind of tools and that might involve going beyond decks eventually. I just don't know what that's going to look like just yet. What advice would you give to copywriters who are listening and like, I want to do that too, or maybe they've purchased your, one of your, um, your decks too. What should they do? What should they think about before creating their first product? Are there any steps 
we could follow based off what worked for you? I, yeah, I mean, definitely get, um, like gauge if there's interest first. Um, and we did that through a pre-sell. I, I think that was a really good idea because not only did it tell us that, I mean, I was hoping to sell 10, we sold over a hundred and I was thrilled and we sold that within like 24 hours. So I was really, really excited. Uh, but that also gave me all of the, um, the, it really funded all of the manufacturing as well. Um, people also seem to have a block about using China. And I like, this is something that comes up fairly often with people. They're like, Oh, how could you manufacture in China? It's probably low quality, but that's really not the case. China manufactures what you want them to manufacture. So if you're trying to get like really bottom budget, really, really cheap stuff, they will give you crappy quality. But if you're willing to kind of invest in quality, you're going to end up with a better product. And I, I, I mean, I have never had anybody complain about the quality of the decks. I think they're, pretty great um and it's only like as we get more orders and we start placing you know larger manufacturing orders that quality is only going to go up because we're able to invest more in, on that side so don't be afraid of china <laughs> and definitely pre-sell and like have some kind of um revenue before and put that into manufacturing rather than dipping into your own pocket yeah i mean just like i said i'm holding the cards right now and they're a really high quality i, I love them i think they're really cool um so obviously China can produce some pretty good stuff if, if you're working with the right people. Okay, so let's shift then and talk about this third area of your business, which is just really starting to uh, get up to speed. In fact, uh, if we've timed the podcast right, you'll be launching you know, in the next week or so. Uh, tell us about what you're doing uh, with uh, not products, not copywriting, but with the technology and platform. Sure. So because we work with copyright, sorry, with course creators so much, um, we saw a couple of things in the course industry. It was really that the industry has a problem with quality control. The best courses, the most popular courses aren't necessarily the best courses. They're just, you know, courses with the best marketing teams behind them. On the flip side, as you know, a consumer of courses, I would get burnt so many times because I would fall for this marketing despite being a copywriter. Um, we did the numbers and our team alone over the last few years, we've spent around 20 grand on bad courses alone. And that number, like it kills me. It's just so upsetting. Um, but that's really because they're marketed so well. And we wanted to tackle this problem from both sides. We wanted to create a platform where people could put their courses up and host them for free and we would market it for them. So you know, if you're a subject matter expert, but you're not necessarily, you don't necessarily have launch experience or course marketing experience, which is a pretty specific skill set, um, we would take that off your hands and we would market it for you. And we would take 25% off, um, off revenue and not profit. We would run ads, we do emails, we do all of that. And that was essentially it. But then we'd kind of run into that same problem again, where like, quality wasn't really being maintained and it wouldn't differentiate us from platforms like Udemy and Skillshare. So instead of just accepting every course that comes our way, we are vetting every single course that goes up. So every single course that goes up, we are like, we've developed a rubric, we're going through it, we're making sure it's tangible, you know, not just like fluff, audio video quality is good, it's not just text, we're, we're putting it through all of that and then uploading everything. So that's kind of the big picture of what we're doing. It's called terrain because I didn't mention that. Okay. So because, you know, you mentioned that the course space 
is like a lot of courses don't work, right? We all we all know that. We've experienced it for ourselves. Can you dig a little bit deeper into that and talk about almost like a state of the union on the course space, the course industry from your insider knowledge working with clients and uh, working in that space for a couple of years? Where is it at today and what's working, what's not working? I think 2020 is actually, and with COVID, I think it's been great for the course space because I think courses are having a bit of a moment right now, especially if, you know, they're bite-sized and tangible and evergreen. Um, I think we're going to see a big um, surge in the number of courses being produced, but people are kind of, I think, more risk-averse this year with, um, you know, investments and things like that. Understandably, um, people have lost jobs. There's, you know, the whole looming threat of a recession um, so I think smaller, and I'm seeing smaller mid-range courses are doing really well, unless, you know, you have like Amy Porterfield's budget and you can kind of execute those big, big launches. But even on some of the larger launches, I know people, um, are seeing, aren't seeing the kinds of numbers that they necessarily always do. So, and I mean, it's becoming increasingly expensive also to do those kind of launches because, um, with Facebook is kind of crazy right now, ad spend is high, all of those things um, mean that for smaller businesses, like I think people who are maybe under the 500,000-ish mark, I think smaller, more like specialized bite-sized courses are working better. And and we're also seeing like hyper-focused niches. So not just, you know, women entrepreneurs, but like women of color entrepreneurs or LGBTQ entrepreneurs, like specific courses for more targeted segments are also performing better right now, at least from kind of what I'm seeing on my side. So let's talk a little bit about the product that you're developing. Uh, you know, you mentioned that it's, you know, this platform for courses that you're going to be vetting. Like, let's say I have a course or I'm thinking, oh, I'd like to do a course, but, you know, I'm not sure, you know, I've thought about maybe putting up something on Udemy or maybe, you know, doing something on Podia or, you know, Kajabi or wherever. Um, what, kinds of courses would be a fit for what you're building at Terrain? Right. So right now we're looking at primarily doing business um, courses that are focused at online business. So anything that can help entrepreneurs up level in some way, um, that's kind of where we're focusing. So copywriting courses, um, social media, any sort of digital marketing, but also things like, you know, how to manage your money as an entrepreneur or like how to deal with stress and burnout as an entrepreneur. Uh, mindset stuff, um, speaking, all of those kind of things, all of the things that kind of fit into an entrepreneur's toolkit. That's what we're trying to, we're trying to create like a curated marketplace for those courses. So maybe this is a similar question, but what makes a great course? So if I'm creating a course for the first time, or maybe I have some courses and I know they could be better, what are some ingredients you think make a great course? it has to be as tangible as possible. So ending every lesson with like a summary of takeaways or some action that people can implement into their business, having supplementary resources like workbooks and things like that are also really helpful. Um, anything that kind of helps people take your expertise and then apply it into their own business and then breaks that down step-by-step step is generally a good course. Um, lots of examples and just lots of relevant examples. Like I see people throwing around examples like, oh, Amazon and this and that. But unless you're talking about like very high level e-commerce marketplaces, a small business owner isn't necessarily going to be able to kind of take those, the same strategies and apply them 
it would need you if you are going to talk about Amazon, then you'd have to like make that link. So it's clear to people how they can actually apply that. And I think those kind of things are what make courses as tangible and actionable as possible. And also we're seeing like those kinds of courses generally tend to have like higher course engagement, higher, um, higher completion rates and things like that. The big focus of terrain is trying to make the course taker experience um, as like powerful and like as efficient as possible. What we're trying to, we're trying to make sure that people actually complete the courses. Um, we have like, we're game, using a lot of gamification with badges and, you know, certifications and all of those things as well. Every single course um, on terrain comes with a badge and a LinkedIn integrated certifi- uh, certificate. Never say that word right. Um, yeah, and like we have loyalty point system. We have like, you have goal setting as part of like, you know, your dashboard. We're trying to make, we're trying to do everything we can to make sure that you actually complete the course you pay for. Yeah, it sounds like a really cool platform. So as you look at your business overall, then, you know, I know that because it hasn't launched yet, this really isn't a part of your revenue at this point, but, you know, looking out a year or two in the future, how do you project that this is going to impact the business that you have right now? And that's in consideration that you said, you know, maybe the agency stuff will go away and this becomes the main business. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it would really depend on how um, how this takes off. I mean, if this takes off well, then I would love for all of the writers on the agency side to get absorbed into terrain and then kind of go that way. Um, or maybe maybe we continue to run them as like two separate arms of the business and we, um, we kind of go from there. It would really depend on how much of my energy terrain requires eventually. And yeah, I think that's what's going to be the deciding factor for us. How much of the, how much of my energy it requires, and how much really revenue it's producing? Can we talk more about if what it looks like if I have a course that is accepted on Terrain? What that will look like for me? How do I get paid for the course I created? What is that split with you? Um, what are the benefits of working with you and your team? And just kind of run through that a little bit more. Sure. So you guys know this because I've hated on the idea of creating a course so many times. <laughs> I have sworn I will never create a course, but now I'm building a course platform. So it's kind of funny. Which is so funny. Yeah. I think the first time we met you on our first call together, you were like, I'm never creating a course. <laughs> I know it's really, it's, it's hilarious. And a big part of that was because creating a course is so much work, but then, you know, it doesn't kind of end there. There's just so much marketing involved post-creation and I just felt felt like I didn't have the stamina to ever kind of have that kind of follow-through and I would want to create the course and be done with it but then it kind of the process is just beginning there and like I've seen this with so many different entrepreneurs as well they create this really really great course but then marketing is so expensive and it takes work so it just kind of sits there in some corner of their hard drive gathering dust so that's kind of what we're trying to tackle so if you have a course We'll put it on terrain. You get 75% of it. We keep 25. And that's really um, our introductory rate that might go up eventually. Um, And that's essentially it. You give us the course. We put it on. We will run ads. We will market it. We will cross-sell your course to other people on the platform. And all you have to do is actually cash in that check at the end of the month. And it's the idea was that it's courses have always been this kind of evergreen courses especially have always been this like oh you know create an evergreen course and get passive income but it's never actually passive because there's so much marketing involved and there's so much management and kind of everything involved we're trying to create a platform that makes having an evergreen course like the actual path towards passive income 
it's actually going to be the as hands-off as possible, and that's our goal. Let's break in again and go a little deeper on the products Iman has created. So this part is really interesting to me because Iman has created a different kind of product than I would typically think of for my own business. You know, when I'm thinking about products, it might be you know the services that I'm actually offering to my clients, but productized, right? Boxed up into a way that makes it really easy for them to buy. But Amon is obviously creating very physical products that she's selling and at a decent profit margin as well and having them created, you know, offshore, brought in. So so that works for, for her. And I, I just think it's an interesting thing, maybe to take a moment and just contemplate, you know, are there products that we can create in our own businesses like this, you know, maybe it's not a card deck, maybe it's something else. And we've seen a lot of copywriters decide to do that, you know, who have maybe written for nutritional supplements and then they decide to create their own supplement and sell it. Or, um, you know, copywriters who have gone into say the dating, uh, niche and created products to help people, you know, attract a, a partner there, or, you know, copywriters who have created, products in the credit niche, helping people to overcome you know, bad credit and to fix those kinds of things. And instead of just helping clients with their copywriting prowess, they're actually creating products and then using those superpowers to sell them on their own. So they're not just getting paid as a copywriter, but also as the business owner. So yeah, I know we've talked about this in the past and I just I like pointing a finger at it because I think it's an opportunity that maybe more of us could consider and expand our business in some interesting ways. Yeah. And, and we've seen other copywriters create products recently too. And I do feel like this is, you know, we talked about the future of copywriting, but I do think this is a shift that will continue to happen with copywriters. And even Christy Fanton recently launched her own uh, journal that, you know, we can get her in here to talk about too, and an actual journal that she can mail to her customers. So it's a great way to create a unique mechanism that's different and that stands out um, and kind of can connect to customers through all the noise because it is a different product than what everyone else is creating. Yeah. And then one other thing that kind of stood out to me is, you know, Amon mentioned, and this is something that we, I, I think we all feel pretty deeply is that there are a ton of really bad courses out there. And, you know, part of her business model with terrain is that they're going to be curating, you know, the good courses from the bad courses. And, and I think, um, that that's an, an awesome thing. But in your opinion, Kara, you know, you've, you've taken courses, we've created our own courses. What is it that makes a course good as opposed to something that's not worth spending any money on? Well, I think today, I mean, Aman talked about enough of it, but it's about implementation and actually walking away. It's the course creator is making a promise and the course or program is designed to actually fulfill on that promise. And that usually involves uh, some form of accountability and implementation. And I think there's more of a need for that now. And so um, there are, you know, Amon made some really great suggestions as far as what you could add to courses, clear takeaways at the end of each module, which seems obvious, but uh, probably most of us don't do it. And even additional workbooks to help you complete the content, relevant examples. I, I like that she mentioned that. I think um, pulling in examples that can speak to your customers too and your members um, and are relatable and then we've i mean we've been working on this with our own accelerator program which we don't we don't really call it a course um, because it's so hands-on but we've been really focused on our completion rates too because we just i know 
we feel like it's not, there's no point in creating something if people do not complete it. Um, that is not enjoyable for us or for the people who are paying for it. So specifically, you and I have focused on adding copy crew accountability groups in the accelerator program to help all of them finish and support each other in small groups of five or six people over those four months together. And I, I do think that those copy crew groups and the accountability has really helped our, uh, our completion rate go up to at least 77% with our previous program and cohort. What else are we doing right now? It's something else that we're looking at incorporating into the underground as we're rethinking, you know, what's the best way to help people learn the things that they want to learn or the needs in their business and adding those same kinds of elements to make the underground an even more powerful tool. And obviously we'll be sharing more about that in the coming months as that rolls out. Yeah. And, and we've also added the leaderboard. So like affiliates have these, affiliate launches have these leaderboards that we all kind of like make fun of, but they're also really useful and competitive and help encourage affiliates to sell more and big launches or all launches. And so we took that idea and are incorporating it in the accelerator program just to experiment, just to see if it helps members track progress and even help each other and identify who might be a little bit behind and support each other and also share visibly, you know, when you hit a milestone and when you make it through each module. So um, it's a little bit more uh, group accountability that we can share. And so we'll test that to see if it works well too. But I think a lot of what we're talking about is just course creators uh, need to really think about completion rates. And because there are people like Amon who are coming into the space and are going to create better courses and raise the bar. And so if you're not raising your own bar and focused on completion and, um, and implementation and results, then you're just, you're going to get wiped out of the market. Then there was one other thing that stood out to me here, and this is something, again, that we've we've touched on in past podcasts, we've talked about in the Facebook group, the Copywriter Club, but people are always asking, you know, how do I get royalties or how do I create a relationship with my client that pays me an ongoing amount over and over and over, whether that's within a retainer or with um, you know, sales materials that you write and then collect on as they continue to perform over time. And Amon's taken kind of a, a unique approach to this that's at least we're thinking about too, and where she's created this platform that she's going to be taking a percentage of all sales you know, from people who use it. And the way that that works is beneficial to both her and to anybody who wants to put a course on her platform, because the, she basically does a lot of the work and gets paid for that. But then there's the, the, the really, at least right now, the very beneficial share that goes to the, the course creator and who's able to benefit as well. So as, as sales grow, both parties participate together and benefit together, which is a slight twist on some of these things that we've pointed out before. Yeah. And the cool thing about that is you don't have to create a platform like Amon to start collecting these revenues in the percentage. The 20, I think she's collecting 25%. And so you could just look at your own project load and your own clients and start talking about, you know, maybe you just get paid an upfront base pay for a launch but you're committed to working with them over a year and you're going to collect 25% of what they make from that course. And you're incentivized to market that and get into the weeds and fully commit over six months or a year. And there's a better opportunity for you to get to make more and to build a true partnership. 
And then when you start to think that way, you're going to start vetting your clients way more because you're going to ask better questions on sales calls to make sure the course has an opportunity to sell and it has a great offer. And so you'll start to just attract better clients too by looking at your business that way. And again, it's like we can all start doing that. We don't have to create a SaaS platform to do that, although that's cool. You can start thinking about how you could approach it from a mon's way in your own business. Yeah. I mean, what if you started in, in addition to providing copywriting services, but what if you started suggesting products that clients could create and, you know, maybe you take a percentage of that revenue as you help them create new products. I mean, there's, there's just so many different ways to look at this and things that we can do differently in our business to help grow, to add an additional revenue stream, you know, just to, to think about things differently. And that's one of the things I really admire about Amon and what she's been doing. So let's go back and wrap up the interview with some questions about getting everything done. So as I listen to you talking about all the different areas of your business and what you're doing and how much time you're putting into it and the people that you're managing, the products that you're creating, all of this stuff, it's making me really tired, Amon, <laughs> just even thinking about it. Like, how do you structure your days and your weeks that you can get so much stuff done? And I mean, you know, if people go back and listen to that previous episode and see where you've come, you know, in your own business over the last three or four years, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing, the progress. So clearly part of that's you, but you must have some systems that help you, you know, just get crap done. I really want to say I do, but it just means that I've sacrificed every other aspect of my life temporarily. Um, I have, I've cut out really every other distraction in my life. If you, if people go back and listen to the old episode, then I spent quite a bit of time talking about, you know, how I use like fitness and like all of that stuff to structure my day and feel and like, and how important that was um, as part of my life. But right now, I don't think I can remember the last time I worked out. Um, I have like meal delivery, so I don't cook at all. I have like frozen meals delivered to my house every Friday and I just like pull one out of the fridge and I eat that. It's, it's very much, it's, it's, it's like, I'm really the poster child for toxic hustle culture right now. And it's unfortunate. <laughs> it's unfortunate. Um, it really is unfortunate. Like I roll out of bed, I work and then I roll back into bed. That's basically my life right now. Um, it's great because, you know, with COVID, I have an excuse for not leaving the house and not seeing friends. But really, this was how it was pre-COVID as well. It's not ideal. And I, I don't like the way my life is right now. But I, I acknowledge that it's temporary and I'm working towards a certain goal. And once I feel like I've hit that, then I can kind of start incorporating other parts of my life, you know, other things back into my life. Um, yeah, that's essentially it. Like, you know, I'm working crazy hours and it it's sacrificing a lot of other things in the process. I mean, I'm single, I don't have kids, I don't have any other responsibility, so I'm able to make those sacrifices. That's not necessarily something that other people would be able to do, you know, people with kids and stuff like that. You can't not feed your kid for a week. And I have like automated <laughs> feeding for my cat. So like, he has a machine, so I don't need to worry about that. I feel like we need to have another IRL just to get you out of the house. <laughs> Probably. I would leave the house for that. I would leave the house for you guys. Well, I think you're right, though. I mean, there's always some sacrifice involved. I mean, to some degree, and there's a tolerance, right, is awareness of the sacrifice and then how long you're willing to tolerate it and what it's worth to you. So it sounds like you see the value, you see the light at the end of the tunnel. And so for you, it's it's not a long-term plan. Um, and you said you 
it sounds like you know what that goal is. Do you mind sharing that, what that is for you? Where you're like, once I hit this milestone, I can start to focus on other areas of my life. Should I say this out loud? I've never said this out loud. I'm kind of yeah. saying it. Definitely <laughs> anyway. say it out loud. I would love to get to a point where we're making 250 grand a month. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, that's that's an awesome goal. All right, we'll bring you back on the show when you're doing that, and then we'll talk about your next goal. That might only be a couple of months from now. I might be 45. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, as a follow-up to that, you know, when I think of you, I, I think, you know, we talk about the future of copywriting so often on this show, but I, like, I think your face pops into my head when I think about the future of copywriting. It's like you represent that to me um, because you bring in so many different skills and this entrepreneurial vision to the copywriting space. And so my question is, what advice would you give to other copywriters who feel like maybe they're lacking in that entrepreneurial spirit or like they're not, they're having a hard time tapping into that vision that you clearly have? Um, and maybe it's because they're burned out and they're just like serving clients and they can't pull themselves out of it which we all fall into that at some point, but what advice would you give so that we can, people who want to have that entrepreneurial spirit can tap into that more? I think the first step is kind of creating space because when I was, um, when I was kind of stuck in that brace of like, you know, X, Y, and Z copywriters doing this and they're doing this and they're doing this. I kind of felt like I felt pressure to create a course, even though I hated the idea of creating a course, I felt pressure to, you know, do live streams and show up on Instagram in a certain way and all of that. It was, it took me kind of removing myself from that space for a few months and letting everything breathe a little bit for those ideas to start popping up um, and exposing yourself to as many different types of businesses as possible. It really helps. And just reading things outside of your niche. Um, I think that's definitely a really good place to start. Um and really looking at different ways to diversify your income streams. Cause like, I know people are like, people love to joke about how AI is coming for our jobs, but like, if you're not a stellar, like absolutely amazing copywriter, I think GPT-3 is scarily good. I am afraid. Like if I was just a copywriter right now, I would be a little bit afraid. <laughs> I'm only half joking here. The other thing that I see as I, you know, look at what you've accomplished, Aman, is that you give your permission, you give yourself permission to explore a lot. And like you've leaned into niches, but then, you know, as that doesn't feel right, you've leaned right back out of them and into something else. And, you know, you've, you've leaned into products, you're, you're leaning into a platform. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure if I have a, a question as much um, about this, but is there something about you or something about the way that you, you know, think about your business, um, that gives you permission to do that, that maybe a lot of the rest of us don't have or don't do? I'm really okay with the idea of failure. Like I'm, I don't see failure as something very permanent. Like if two weeks from now, the scribesmith disappeared, it would suck, but I would, I think like I, I have enough faith in myself that I think I'd be able to build something else. Like it, I don't take any sort of failure as like a value judgment on me as a human being. And I think that's been helpful. Like it, it, it's never personal. Like failure has never been personal for me. This is just something like it's just been me as a kid much. Too. And it's the reason I didn't care about school at all. Um, like I really didn't care about my grades. I really didn't care if people thought I was stupid because I didn't believe that about myself. 
I know we've talked a good amount about mindsets today, um, but you know, I've noticed. Well, I think even when you came on the show last time, it was one of your first few podcast interviews, and um, you weren't quite putting yourself out there and marketing yourself as frequently back then. So, what's helped you increase your visibility and um, speak more and market your brand more today? What's helped you move into that space um, that could be useful to other people who are struggling with putting themselves out there? Sure. So, um, like I said, I have no baggage around the fact about my, like, I don't ever doubt my own skills or intelligence and stuff like that, but I totally am incredibly insecure about the idea of putting myself out there. And that's something that still kind of bothers me till today. And my way of dealing with that is one, um, it's, not just me anymore. So I'm like, it's for everybody. The idea that it's like, not me talking about myself is definitely helpful. And that changes once you kind of have a team um, to not doing any of that part myself. Like I don't touch our social copy. Um, like the team knows that we need to market ourselves and they market, they do all of that. And I just, I don't go near it. I don't listen to any of my old podcasts. Um, I don't watch any webinars that I've been on. I don't look at any of that I just show up pretend it's like a conversation between someone you know friends and then forget it ever happened and then once we get the link the team will market market it for us like I don't have any like big mindset shits here I just avoid it (laughs) I know what I can do I know what I cannot do and I just let the team take over so Amon if you were able to you know grab a time machine go back to you know Amon say four or five years ago what advice would you give yourself knowing all of the things that you've done and accomplished in the past four or five years you know things you'd maybe do differently, things that maybe do more quickly, things maybe you wouldn't do at all? Um, honestly, like I, I am very, very fortunate. Like I wouldn't, I really wouldn't change very much at all. Um, I would probably, I would probably save more money. I think that would be a big thing kind of looking back. Like I, once I started making real money, I started spending like crazy. I think I would go back and like knock some sense into 22 year old self and be like, put that money in a bank. Um, but really apart from that, in terms of how the business has been built, I'm really grateful that I invested in the accelerator that started all of this for me, the podcast before that, the think tank twice. Um, and then just consistently investing in mentorship has been huge for me. Um, and I am constantly, I mean, I purchased a lot of courses. I'm looking at always learning. Um, and I, I think those were all wise decisions. Um, maybe not the most intentional decisions, but they all worked out for me in the end. You guys are my copy parents and it's been a whole circle for me to come back here. It's thank you so much for everything you guys have done for me and all of the other copywriters you know, in the club. I am amazed at how far Amon's come since we first met her in the Copywriter Accelerator. I mean, it was really clear then that she was going to build a great business as a copywriter, but seeing how far she's come in so little time, I'm literally in awe. Um, All this motion, the product she's created, the software, but unfortunately it comes at a price. And so I'm curious, Kara, what your response is to Amon as the poster child for the toxic hustle culture. Well, I really, I appreciated that Iman was transparent with us and she was upfront and, and just even, I mean, has a sense of humor about the toxic hustle culture and is just owning it too. Because I think during the interview, you could tell, like it kept creeping up for me, just like 
how are you doing all of this? How are you getting all this done? And so I thought I found relief in her honesty and her answers and just comfort in knowing that she is making real sacrifices now. And she's clear about those sacrifices. It's not like she's lying to herself, but um, the payoff for her is, is greater than the sacrifice. And it's also just good to know where you are in life and for her right now, it's worth it and she's cool with it. But, um, you know, if you're in a different stage of life where that sacrifice is just not, it's just not worth it. Just, it's also comforting to know that it's okay not to sacrifice or not to sacrifice as greatly, right? We're all making micro sacrifices as we grow our business, but what truly are you willing to sacrifice over the next year or the next five years? And is it worth it? And sometimes the answer is yes, it is. And sometimes it's not. And so I think just being realistic about what you want out of your own life at this time and what, where you want to be five years from now, 10 years from now, and figuring out if it, if the work you're putting in will match up to where you want to be. And just having those honest conversations with yourself about that is what I took away from that conversation. Yeah. I mean, we've talked before about, you know, if you want what other people have, you've got to do the things that those other people do. And if you want something that other people don't have, you've got to do things that will get you that stuff that other people won't do. And I I think that's what it comes down to. She's really open about what the trade-offs are. And I think, like you said, if, if we want something, and we just have to realize, you know, what are the trade-offs? You know, am I willing to give up, uh, you know, sleep? Am I willing to get up, give up my social life in order to create something right now that might pay for, you know, my future, uh, that might, you know, create something that, you know, continues to run and benefit me in the future? And that, as long as you're cool with the trade-off, that's cool too. But I think the flip side of that is also nobody has to do this, right? I mean, there are other ways to build businesses and uh, the only way to succeed is not through burnout. It's not through, you know, pushing yourself. There are other things, other pathways and Amon's just chosen this one. And I guess just, I'm curious what for you, I mean, how have you sacrificed more recently and, and has it been worth it? How have you looked at it for your own life? Yeah, that's a good question because there are times when I do, you know, work weekends or not full weekends, but, you know, take time on a Saturday to complete, you know, a, a newsletter that's going out to the underground or other things. And for me, that trade-off is also worth it too. But I, uh, I'm in a different, say, I'm in a different place in life than say you are, or even Amon, you know, my kids are mostly grown. I still have plenty of time for, you know, the water polo games and, you know, going to, to lunch with them and, and hanging out. And it's mostly a sacrifice of personal time at this point. Whereas it's not something I could have done 15 years ago with little kids. And, uh, it is again, if I, when I was a mom's age, maybe it was something that I could have put even more time into just because of the way, you know, life changes all of us. So it all comes back to being cool with, with what you're giving up. How about you? Do you feel like you have to sacrifice things in your personal life in order to make business work? I feel like I have definitely. A couple of years ago when I was living in New York City, I feel like I was working every night. <laughs> Maybe not every night, but it was like every day, every night, sun, every Sunday. And I was just in that stage where I guess I could have avoided it, but it was also the stage I was in. It was early on in business. And so um, I was willing to make that sacrifice knowing that it could pay off in a couple of years. And and it has. I don't work as much now. I still, still work, but it's the hours are not as intense. And this is the time where my kids are 
five and seven, and I want to spend as much time with them as possible. So, um, you know, I think I'm really intentional about it now, and I always check in to make sure it feels okay and it's balanced, and um, and I'm not sacrificing too much for what where I want to be ten years from now. So. Um, but I think the check-in point is what you can do every week, every month. We can all do that. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that stood out to me is when Amon was talking about being okay with failure. And I think this is really closely related to that hustle culture. She's willing to try things that don't work. And uh, you know, the investment in ideas that may not pan out, I think, is a really valuable skill set. You know, being able to see that something isn't going to succeed. Um, or that there's a chance that something might not succeed and still being willing to try it anyway, just to see what happens. It, it's almost the best way to learn. And I think that's one of the keys for Amon's amazing growth over the last two years. Yeah. And she also mentioned, you know, her goal was, is to make 250 K a month. Um, that's her goal. And I, that stood out to me because, um, you know, there's, there's no correct goal for all of us as copywriters. For many copywriters, it's to make 250K a year would be a win. And that's just, you've made it. And so um, to hear her voice that the goal is to make 250K a month, I'm inspired and in awe of that, not necessarily because I because I want the same thing, but just because she's thinking really big and she's owning it too. And she shared it publicly. I mean, she's not just journaling about it. She's voicing it, uh, which is, you know, a great first step. And so whether or not that's your goal, it doesn't have to even be money related, but just challenging yourself to think bigger in the way that Amon has. I think that's something that we can all do in all of our businesses. Okay, so to learn more about Aman, you can check out her website at scribesmith.com. And if you're interested in what she's creating at Terrain, be sure to visit theterrain.io. If you've got a course you think Aman's team should check out and possibly even host on Terrain, email team at theterrain.io. That's the end of another show. Our intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. You can learn more about the programs that the Copywriter Club offers, things like the Copywriter Underground and the Copywriter Think Tank, which is our mastermind for copywriters who are building six-figure businesses, by visiting thecopywriterclub.com. And if you haven't done it already, would you mind opening up Apple Podcasts to leave a review of the show? Let us know what you think about our guests and the information that we share. Those reviews help us get the word out and let us know that you appreciate what we bring to the show each week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Copywriters coming together to 